you want to get the latest news about our podcast, including upcoming episodes, exclusive content, and live events, visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Once that game's over, it really becomes a triviality. It's just a game. But when you talk about your team going bankrupt or your owner being ushered into a federal court, all these things I think matter on a much larger scale and I really get into writing those stories. Just because you're a sports reporter doesn't mean that you're not writing important stories that have power and impact. I'm Michael O'Connell and you're listening to It's All Journalism. We get our story ideas from lots of different places, sometimes uh, by things that we see on social media. Other times people pitch us guests. This week's guest, Tim Graham of the Buffalo News, sports writer for the Buffalo's News, was pitched to me by our producer, Amber Healy, who lives in the Buffalo area. It's not that she's a huge sports fan, although she loves the uh, Sabres and she loves the Bills. But she's been really impressed with the writing of Tim Graham, as as well as a lot of people have been impressed by it. He's uh, had a 20-plus year career in sports writing, beginning in boxing and eventually professional football and hockey. I'm really pleased to have him on the podcast because, you know, he's not just a game day reporter. He's somebody who writes big stories about sports, stories that have impact. Enjoy. Tell me about how you got involved in become, becoming a, a sports writer. Well, it's uh, not the traditional route. And I tell my students, I, I teach a class at Canisius College, that if I can do it, anybody can do it. Because I went to Baldwin-Wallace College, west of Cleveland, and uh, Baldwin-Wallace didn't even have a journalism program. But they had a school paper that I took photos for. I, I was a hobbyist. Photography was just something I liked to do on the side, uh, get in the dark room and, and actually do my own prints and all that stuff back before digital photography. And my roommate wrote for the paper and he met a girl, as you do, in his freshman year of college. And he and his girlfriend disappeared for a few days, going off and doing things that lovebirds do, I guess, to get away from the roommate, go have some privacy. And he was supposed to have a story due one day. The sports editor called our room and wanted to know where his story was. And I don't know because I hadn't seen the guy. So as a photographer, I knew the sports editor. I wanted to help her out. I wanted to help my roommate out. So I did the story. And uh, it was on uh, the tennis team. It was uh, on. The, I was able to make some phone calls and get some statistics and pull it together. And uh, seeing my work in the paper the next day was a big thrill to have your work immediately evaluated by the public. And now, granted, the public in this case was just the college campus, but it wasn't just a professor reading my work or a teacher or my parents. It was out there, and it was pretty exciting to think. So I kept doing it. I started writing on a regular basis, Was got some positive feedback, and switched my career path from sport management, wanting to work for a team, to wanting to be a sports writer. And it was uh, something that I had to be ambitious about because Baldwin-Wallace didn't have the training for me. I didn't have professors there that could take me aside and teach me the ropes. The internships were not happening. 
So uh, I started to do whatever I could. I, I was a pretty scrappy guy in terms of getting assignments, or working for different uh, newspapers, the smaller newspapers covering high school football and basketball games and, and just building a portfolio until I could get full-time work. So you said you, 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 t- you teach at, at Canisius. What, what is it you're teaching? Are you teaching reporting or, or is it particularly sports or just writing in general? This, this sem- yeah, this semester I'm teaching sports journalism. I do that every spring semester, once a year, just it's uh, specific to, to sports journalism. But I have taught uh, other classes in the past, too, to communications classes, a little more broad strokes journalism classes. What is it you tell um, those students about sports journalism? What, what is it? that's appealing about it to you and maybe would be appealing to them? I think that if they're taking my class, usually they have an interest in it already. At least, if not in sports journalism, they want to be journalists and are open or curious to all the different forms of it and want to just find out what sports journalism is about. So that there's, there's an auto, automatic curiosity just by signing up for my class. And what I tell them is what I'd mentioned before. If I can do it, anybody can. And I think that really the keys to it are ambition. And this last or next piece of advice is, I think, universal to any line of work, especially in today's job market, is to be willing to move. The idea that you are going to go to college in your hometown and get a job in your hometown and you know put down roots and start a family and buy a house and stay in your hometown, I don't think that that's plausible, at least not seemingly as much as it used to be. And that's where I was able to grow my career. I had to move. I I didn't have those internships that got me a really plum job right out of college, or at least set me farther down on the path than I did coming out of a school that didn't offer sports journalism or journalism, period. So I moved around a lot. I I got my first full-time job at a small paper near Kent, Ohio. And then went to the Boston Herald as a clerk for a little while, went back to Ohio as an assistant sports editor, went out to Las Vegas as a high school's reporter. And by the time I was done there, I was a columnist and and covering college sports and a lot of boxing, which was huge out there before coming to the Buffalo News in 2000. And so every one of those jobs was a step up in some way, whether it be a step up in size of market or in job responsibility or pay. I never took a step back, but I was also never comfortable where I was. I was always looking for the next step. And being from Cleveland originally to get back to Buffalo is uh, a triumph. It's about as close as I could come, I guess, from to staying in Cleveland and working for my hometown paper, which would have been the Plain Dealer. I'm not interested in that anymore. I was at one point, but I had to move around before I got to a place where I felt like I was home. My wife is, you know, I mentioned this on the podcast before. My wife is from the Buffalo area. She grew up in Tonawanda, and I'm really kind of familiar with you know, the city, the people who live there, and their rather interesting relationship with, with professional sports. They love they love the Bills. They love uh, the Sabres. And sometimes that's an that's a un- unrequited love, you know, in, in sort of long-term success. <laughs> now, you say you came to, originally to Buffalo in, in 2000 or the early 2000s. You know, that was after their, the, the Bills' big run, earlier run at the Super Bowl. It was after that. Yeah, that was in the 90s. Uh, My first day at the Buffalo News was the Monday morning after home run throwback, which was the infamous play in which the Tennessee Titans pulled off a gadget on a kick return and stunned the Buffalo Bills 
in what for the next 18 years would be their last playoff appearance. And they just broke that slump this past January, but it had been 18 years since then. So I began at a pretty dark time or what was the beginning of a dark time for the Bills. And also it was, although the Buffalo Sabres did have some success, it was, what would it have been six or seven months after what is known here as no goal when Brett Hull had his foot in the crease and scored the Stanley Cup winning goal against the Buffalo Sabres. And it turned out that it should have been an illegal goal and was not ruled as such. So, yeah, pretty, <laughs> pretty aggravating time for Buffalo sports fans right when I arrived. Buffalo has a, um, their fans, they have a lot of heart. I mean, every, every town they say, oh, we've got a great heart. You know, it's just a tough time where we're, we're going to come back, back. But, you know, Buffalo with the weather, with, with the Bills and the Sabres and, and sort of their travails over the, the decades. The Sabres went bankrupt. You know, right when I started covering them, I covered them for seven seasons and I covered a bankruptcy. The owners were actually led away in handcuffs in the Adelphia Cable scandal, the Regus family. That's when I was covering the team. They were awful. They were up for sale. I, I covered a, the team being sold. I covered a season-long NHL lockout. So a good chunk of the Sabre story while I was covering them was about business and courts and crime even. And the product on the ice wasn't all that great till the 05-06 and 06-07 seasons in which they became great. And I uh, had a chance to, to cover uh, a winner for a change. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, a lot of people, when they think about sports reporting, they don't, they don't even really think about, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of grit a lot of depth to reporting that you can do that has nothing to do with with wins or losses, you know, business side stuff. I mean, you've written about um, the head injury issue in in the NFL. Um, well, you also wrote about uh, the whole you know kneeling during the national anthem thing. Could you sort of talk about those stories and and your kind of approach to them? Over the course of my career, I've been exposed to a lot of different aspects of sports business, not just the product on the ice around the field. And those are every bit as fascinating to me as what happens on Sunday afternoons with the Buffalo Bills. I covered their sale also, which in Western New York, I think, is one of the biggest stories of any kind. It's clearly the biggest sports story in Western New York history when Ralph Wilson died and who was going to buy the Bills because fans had feared for generations. So Ralph Wilson was old for 20, 25 years before he died in his 90s, and people were wondering what was going to happen to the Bills when he passed away. And the fear was that they would move to Los Angeles. Later, the boogeyman was Toronto. You have London. It's the NFL's flirtations there. And so when Ralph Wilson died, it was doom. And the Pagulas stepped forth and, and bought the team, saved the Bills to keep them uh, in western New York for forever, probably. And that, to me, was the biggest story because you can't – the biggest story you could say is, well, if the Bills ever win a Super Bowl. Well, if the Bills leave, they have no chance to win that Super Bowl. So that's why that story was big. And I'll even put it up there in a top ten with McKinley's assassination. Let's put that number one as the biggest Buffalo sports story. And then I think the Bills, the sale or Ralph Wilson's death, isn't too far behind. That's how big sports – are here in, in Western and, New York. So. And, and then Norwood's kick would be the number three, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be up there. But like I said, you don't even have a Norwood's kick if you have no team. So the Bills staying and having 
stability in terms of its its geography is critical because now Bills fans can can settle back and enjoy their teams a little bit more. There was a lot of times, I think, or a lot of seasons where Bills fans only had one foot in and they couldn't fully immerse themselves into the, the Bills experience because they knew, I'm using finger quotes, they knew that the team was going to leave and break their hearts someday. And so the outpouring of emotion when the Pagulas were confirmed to be the owners, a story that I broke and uh, was thrilled to have done so, you know, the sports call-in shows and what you'd see on social media, people were crying over it. They were super emotional that their children and their children's children would be able to grow up as Bills fans, a Buffalo Bills fans. So... Yeah, that was that was a rewarding story to cover, and every bit is and, and more fascinating, more meaningful than what happens in a game. Because really, even though that's what fans get up for, we're talking about football—a once a week experience that uh, you start gearing up for days in advance and, and thinking about and preparing about the upcoming opponent and the matchups. And but once that game's over, it really becomes a triviality. It's just a game. But when you talk about your team going bankrupt or your owner being ushered into a federal court or serious issues like CTE, you know, the brain injuries, things that are going on in the NFL, the national anthem demonstrations, all these things I think matter on a much larger scale. And I really get into writing those stories because I know that if you do it in a comprehensive way, it's the type of story that'll stand the test and be something that you want to Google one, two, five, ten years from now, you can look back on. And hopefully my goal is to have written the definitive story on that subject, as opposed to some game that was played in November that uh, nobody ever goes back to read those game stories. Nobody ever goes back to read the notebook on Thursday that gives you the update on the running back's hamstring injury. So, yeah, that's the stories that really have meaning to me are the ones that that are going to have a long shelf life. How is it? I mean, we, we talk about the passion of, of sports fans and, you know, they, they, they certainly care wins and losses. But, you know, the types of reporting that you're talking about, you know, let's say CTE, for example, you know, what's the challenge in, in making that, you know, understandable for your audience and making them see that this is a really important story and this is why you need to read it? In many ways, I think it's easier because the prospect of death is a pretty, uh, it's universal. We're all afraid. And we all have somebody in our lives. Uh, I think if, unless you're, you know, under the age of 20, maybe you haven't experienced it where your parents or a grandparent or a loved one has gone through a, a decline where you're concerned for their health and, and their livelihood. And when you write about things like CTE, you're able to humanize these people that wear helmets on Sunday afternoons. They wear the, these team colors and they go out and they fight for your city's honor. And these are the guys that we really root for and don't really think about it much beyond that. I'm certain that that is why NFL ratings have slipped interest in it in various uh, different measurable ways among even its target audience is diminishing because of what we're learning about brain injuries with football players. And, you know, every market has had its big CTE story. You know, Junior Seau in San Diego, Dave Dewerson in Chicago. Some cities have had multiples. But the Daryl Talley story that I wrote a few years ago, that was the first of the 
Super Bowl Buffalo Bills in which Bills fans read that story and said, this is happening to our guys too. This isn't something that's just happening somewhere else. It's happening to us. And I think all 32 NFL markets have that story. And um, those need to be told because it is, it's real. And it opens up hopefully an awareness of what's happening to these guys in terms of their health and not just their brain. It's uh, their entire bodies uh, just getting destroyed and the quality of life that they have after giving themselves on Sunday afternoons for the pleasure of the fans. Now, yes, they get paid a lot of money to do that. But then there's Bjorn Nitmo, another story I did on a, on a kicker. People don't think, you know, kickers, they don't even get hit. Who's, uh, he's living with brain trouble uh, because of one hit he did take. He played six NFL games. But he also tried to keep his dream alive for years and years and years. And he played in the Canadian League, and he played in the World League, and he played in the Arena League, and he was in NFL camps. He played in NFL preseason games. So if you look at his stats, it shows six NFL games. But he played a lot. He played a lot of NFL football. And his brain is, is damaged because of it. And he, because he played six NFL games, he didn't make a lot of money. And he, he and his family are broke. It's a troubling, troubling thing to think of all the people who are out there who didn't make millions, who played for one, two, three seasons on the fringes of the NFL. And let's face it, a lot of times those guys are cannon fodder anyway. You know, the guys who are on special teams because they're not good enough to play every down positions on offense or defense. The young guys that they cycle through at the bottom of the roster. Those are the guys who take a lot of punishment, and they don't in the grand scheme of things. When you talk about life, their livelihood for 50 years, yeah, they got paid 300 grand while they were playing, but that doesn't do them much good when they're 50. And when they're 50 and having trouble remembering whether to turn left or turn right to get home. Yeah, it's incredible. I read I read the, uh, the Nitmo story, and it's really kind of... Uh sort of eye-opening that you hear these stories because you know you, you look at you look at uh the big players in the the nfl the, the pe- people who are making so much money who who have the commercial contracts etc and there's this sort of glamour glamorous lifestyle around it and you know you, you don't think about the fact that you know how many people are sort of cycled through an nfl team during a season that you never hear from again and how their lives are affected and then you have something like the um the the kneeling during the national anthem story. What was your take on that as that sort of unfolded over the season? Well, I wrote a story about Colin Kaepernick. Uh, he was playing for the San Francisco 49ers two seasons ago. Or, boy, I'm, I'm losing track of time. Is it three seasons ago now? Uh, we're in between seasons, so I guess it depends on how you want to do the math. But you know, he hadn't played a game yet for San Francisco. And I did a story on on his movement as it was. He had some people who were close to him on the Bills uh, roster. I found uh, Nate Boyer, the Navy SEAL, who was advising him on how to properly handle protesting during the national anthem. And I put together a a nice look at, at exactly what Colin Kaepernick was doing. And coincidentally, good for the story, or at least for you know, making it a little more timely, that was the first start that he got. So he actually played that game. And there were some protests or some counter protests also right outside of New Era Field for that game. There were a group of fans who showed up to kneel with him during the national anthem. So I had that 
story already written. And then when Donald Trump made his remarks about get the son, son of a bitch off the field, you're fired, that resonated with me. And I said, this is going to be a thing in the NFL. And I started making some phone calls within, you know, probably the next morning is really when I, I start. I, I just felt that this is going to be a tipping point in the NFL. And, and sure enough, the next day, some teams started having meetings about it. So yeah, referring back to what I mentioned earlier, these are the stories that really get my juices flowing because it's bigger than sports. Yes, it's a sports story, but it's bigger than that. It crosses over into society and it's uh, people who don't watch football still care about the guys who kneel during the national anthem, whether they hate it, whether they love it, whether they are just curious and, and want to see what happens. It still crosses over. And uh, those are the stories that resonate within me. And hopefully I can you know, turn around a story that informs the reader and gives them something to think about. It's pretty amazing that, that story like that where, you know, there's the drama that's going on in America and, you know, that every week the, the NFL has its own manufactured drama, the drama, the story it wants to tell. And then suddenly it's like, you know, that becomes the stage for this bigger dialogue that's going on. It's just fascinating. Yeah, the older I get, Mike, the, old, the older I get, the less sports matters. And I don't mean that, you know, in a absolute sense. I, I'm talking about the games, the injuries, your fantasy team, things like that. I want to talk about the big issues and the way sports affect the world, the way sports affect how we think, how we act, how we react to what's going on. It's an awakening in many ways. You have it. Think of all the ways through sports that we've pushed movements, that uh, we've had change in the world, You know, going back to the 68 Olympics and the raising fists in Mexico City. Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, uh, Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs, uh, all these, whether it be gender or racial or sexuality, there are so many barriers that get knocked down, awakenings that happen because it happened in the world of sports that allowed us to observe and say, oh, wow, that's not as really a big of a deal as I thought it was, or this is something special that's happening here. I want to see this happen more in my workplace, at the office, in politics, or, or what have you. But you know, sports is, is a wonderful Petri dish. And in many ways, you're sitting in that press box as you're looking down on, on an arena. It's kind of the same shape as a Petri dish. And we're watching things happen and uh, we see what, what shape, what form it's going to take and, uh, and where it's going to go from there. And, and hopefully it's bigger than just the final score, that you're covering something that matters in a very broad sense to people who maybe don't pay attention to the final score. It's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, how like, you know, movies or, or a television show or something will will sort of dra dramatize something and make you see it in a different way. And, you know, when an issue suddenly emerges in a sports arena, it takes whatever that story is and puts it in a different context, and suddenly people are viewing it differently. You know, oh, yeah, this person that I that I follow, this is affecting him, and that sort of relates to this other thing that's going on elsewhere in the world, and now I understand it differently or, or I have a different perspective. You know, so in many ways, it's like sports is really important in, in a way to sort of ha helps us, I guess, as a culture 
to place these things in context where they, they have a bigger meaning. Right. And yeah, you need the game to help you, I guess, keep keep your interest going. If they stop playing games, then would people really care about whether Michael Sam is gay or not? You know, that uh, the fact that you had a guy in the draft uh, who was coming out of Missouri and announced that he announced to the world even before the draft that he was gay. If there weren't games to have been played or if we hadn't seen him play in games, we wouldn't care. So you need the games on some level. And clearly the leagues need the games because that's what makes the money. It's because you have to have something to bet on and to run your fantasy team off of. But the older I get, the more I gravitate to everything that's not the game. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that. Before we wrap up here, I, w- I want to talk about the fact that you're kind of a, you're a multi-platform journalist you write your you, you write your uh, stories for the the buffalo news but then you also have a, a radio show can you sort of talk about you know how these kind of work together i guess it's unusual the relationship that i have with between my radio show and my work for the newspaper is tied together by the buffalo news the buffalo news actually negotiated this airtime with sports radio 1270 the fan here in buffalo and there are two local shows, the Bucky and Sully show, which is on Mondays, which is our two columnists, Jerry Sullivan and Bucky Gleason. They're on Mondays. And then I have a show on Wednesdays. So it's with my paper's blessing, which is great because I know that there are other people who are in my line of work who try to juggle print and radio responsibilities, and they have to make sure that their plate is cleared on one before they could do the other. And it's, uh, it's tough. But the Buffalo News understands that I have this radio show and it's on my schedule and, and the whole thing. So that's very helpful in that regard. But I think that it helps my radio show quite a bit in that I have a lot of contacts and I've, I'm known for having a pretty deep Rolodex. And so that helps me in terms of guests. Whereas I think with a lot of radio stations you have or shows, you have the producer who's out there calling, trying to arrange the guests and uh, the hosts just, uh, you know, show up and, and they have their ideas and the way they want their show to go. And they've sketched out their show. And it takes a lot of prep work to be a host, too, whereas I kind of do it all myself in terms of getting the guests. And then I have a professional producer hire, who's provided by the radio station who handles all of the technical stuff, you know, make sure that I get into, in and out of commercials the right way and things of that nature. So. I'm lucky with that arrangement, and it's quite enjoyable this way. I wouldn't mind to give it a shot five days a week as a regular radio host, but as it is now, it's, uh, I'm able to do the writing that I want to do, and this gives me a chance to dabble. Yeah, well, one of the things I, I, I like about sports journalism is that how passionate the readers are. That, you know, they, they'll let you know if they don't like something you've written or, or they'll let you know if they like something. Is being on these two platforms, does that sort of help sort of feed that, your interaction with your, your, uh, your readers and listeners? Not the radio, probably as much as social media. Social media is instant gratification, and really it has is, it is killed even emails. Uh, I don't get any email over my work anymore. I used to get three or four emails a day when I was covering the Buffalo Sabres back in the early 2000s. And now I write something that could be, for instance, my Daryl Talley story. I maybe got 10 emails for a story that was considered, I think, I don't know if it still holds the record, but it was the most trafficked story in in BuffaloNews.com history. 
So over the course of time, just the emails have really gone down because you get instant gratification. If you're a Twitter user, you can reach out to Tim Graham or Jerry Sullivan or whomever, and we're going to see it right away and we're going to respond right away. And so, yeah, I enjoy that. I enjoy the interaction. I, I get way more interaction that way than I do on radio. So as we wrap up here, what what are you looking forward to uh, the uh, the rest of the the Saber season? How do you think they're going to turn out? Well, not well. It's uh, <laughs> they are still looking for their identity, and much like the I guess the Cleveland Cavaliers just did last night by totally blowing up their team, except for a couple of people. The Sabers probably are going to be looking to retool with their new general manager and their new coach and as much as they can hockey it's tough because everybody has a guaranteed contract and you can't just cut guys like you can in football so yeah it's uh, it's going to be interesting but they're dead in the water they are one of the worst teams in the nhl but they, they that gives them a lot of room i guess to for the new management to to put their mark on this team and try to send them in a different direction if they can just uh, navigate some of these guaranteed contracts well, uh, Tim, thanks for coming on. This has been enjoyable. What, how can people follow you on uh, Twitter? You can follow me on Twitter at ByTimGraham, B-Y-T-I-M-G-R-A-H-A-M. And my email, if anybody wants to shoot me an email, it's at tgram at buffnews, B-U-F-F news.com. Okay. Thanks for coming on the podcast, and take care. All right, Mike. You too. Hey, Nicole. Hey, Mike. <laughs> I love when we start things like this. The reason I, I have you here in the studio today is because we've got some exciting news about our podcast. You know what that is? You know, I don't. You you asked me to come in here, and I'm not quite sure why we're here. No, I I, I have an idea of what this it's, is all about. This is about a survey. We're actually, uh, we've created a reader survey, five questions. Do you think you have time to answer five questions just for the podcast that you love? Yeah, we, we want to uh, get sort of a bead on what people like about our podcast. So Hopefully uh, there's something. Th- hopefully there is something. Uh, if you go to itsalljournalism.com, uh, you'll find a uh, link there to our SurveyMonkey survey. You know, answer the questions. It'll, it'll help us to figure out what type of guests that you like, what type of format that you prefer. Do you like that we're doing these long-form interviews? Would you rather us do more live events and panels, et cetera, that sort of stuff? And just, you know, leave a few comments in there. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you'd like us to see us do, who would you like us to talk to. Now, I've heard that we have a big anniversary coming up. Yes, we do. The 300th episode of It's All Journalism. Will we use the feedback that we get from these wonderful survey responses to inform our big 300th episode? Yes. Yes. That was actually kind of the impetus for this, although we've for a long time we've been wanting to do a survey, but this is uh, us getting up off our butts and said, hey, mm-hmm. why don't we see what the readers like, or the readers, the listeners of our podcast like, and the people who read our content on our website? Who do they want us to interview for our big 300 episode? So fill out the, uh, go to our website, fill out our survey, and let us know. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes and fill out our exclusive reader survey, listener survey at itsalljournalism.com. You can also download past episodes at Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. Did you know, Nicole, 
that It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. I heard about that, yes. Yes, we love being associated with them. Thank you for listening. Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean, across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC.